1: Well, welcome to the podcast. Today we have Amy Bateman, a retired Army judge advocate. Amy, welcome. Hi, Tom. Thank you. I appreciate you coming aboard. And this sounds like it's going to be very interesting and important discussion about self-care as you go through what can be a very anxious and stressful time in a person's life. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Well, as you said, I just retired from the Army and I just retired on December 1st, 2021. So as we speak here today, it's, you know, only a couple months removed from that kind of hard transition. But the preceding 21 years, I was commissioned from West Point in 2000. I was an engineer officer for five years. And I did the funded legal education program and was a judge advocate for 13 years. And I ended my career my last three years in the Army's trial defense service.
1: Wow. So going right from a litigation billet to private practice.
0: Yeah. And that's how I started my career. So I was very lucky, um, you know, with kind of a compressed timeline there as far as when I'm joining the JAG Corps as a very senior captain, I got to go right into a trial counsel billet and then be a senior trial counsel chief of justice. I got to teach criminal law. Then I, I took one brief break out of the criminal law ground to be a command judge advocate of a special operations unit. And then, yeah, and then came back. I ended my career in a kind of a unique way. I thought I was going to end it in a, a leadership position like most lieutenant colonels do. I was a regional defense counsel for two years from 2018 to 2020. And then through a kind of cascading events <laughs> unplanned, triggered by COVID and other things, I decided to stay another year, ask for the opportunity to drop down to a litigation billet and manage a small office and litigate and really see like, can I do this? Is this something I still have the heart and desire and aptitude to do before deciding to kind of go out in private practice and keep doing it in a different form? In a different environment.
1: You've launched into private practice. What was the motivation and take us through that whole process?
0: So one thing I will recommend is actually try to go through some programs of really intense, dedicated coaching, like career coaching. So there's tons of programs out there. The one that I found a couple years out from retirement was the Commit Foundation, and they cater to more senior retiring officers, not always, but initially was more focused on the special operations community and more senior folks who were retiring out of very highly skilled billets. That's evolved a little bit their client base over the years, so to speak. But I was really fortunate to kind of go through a process of deconstructing what are my values? What do I want to do? What makes me happy? What tanks, so to speak, of my life are not full or empty. Through that, I decided, you know, the idea of having the autonomy and being able to help as many people as possible. Like I just, I love helping people through the practice of law. And it seemed like going to private practice would be the best way to do that. Um, So I made that decision in 2020, totally happy with that decision. And then kind of the, the doubt starts to creep in. Right. And when I say doubt, I mean, in large part ego, and you start to look around and see, well, what are other people doing? And Well, that person's going to work for corporate, that person's in big law, that person's at DOJ, that person's, you know, someone They're like, well, can I have this small town practice, then you start doubting, you know, everything, you've kind of worked really hard to deconstruct. And so I kind of went through that phase. And I started, you know, looking for their opportunities. And I did interview with a few places. And then you get the disappointment of like, well, nobody wants me to know I have to open my own practice because this is the only way I'm going to be able to practice law going forward. So, so in a roundabout way, and then I ended up back where I started opening my own practice and about two months into it now, I feel really secure. I'm starting to build a new support base of mentors and friends in the local community. And it's a process. So that's kind of the long and the short of how I ended up retiring from the military and then actually starting my own law practice.
1: So is your law practice sort of everything or focused on criminal defense or what?
0: Perfect is the enemy of good enough, especially when you're trying to really take a leap like that. You can't wait till it's perfect. So I don't have the perfect business model right now. I don't have the perfect marketing plan. Finally, I'm going to sign a lease for some office space this week, which is pretty good, but who knows, maybe could be better someday. As it stands now, it's a general small-town practice, but my specialty and my competency is in military law and uh, criminal defense, and so we'll see what comes of it. We'll see what sort of clientele walks in the door, and I think that's probably going to shape it going forward.
1: Some of the people that I've interviewed thus far, the whole transition process was in that rearview mirror. They've gone through it. You are in the middle of it you are maybe not the honeymoon phase, but sort of coming out of the nightmare phase of all those doubts, but still working through it as we're interviewing here.
0: Um, still pretty raw with the emotions. Yeah, exactly. And they're not all good days like you would hope they would be. I mean, it's a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Like all of the things that you hope for, you get, you get the autonomy, you get the control, you get your life back. My son's playing basketball. I get to go to his 4 p.m. basketball games. I could have never done that before. I never did do that with my older son. You know, I didn't have that opportunity. And then you're like, why do I feel so sad? Why do I feel this like overwhelming sense of emptiness, aloneness, sadness for what should be a time of happiness and elation? And so it's really difficult. And I guess this cognitive dissonance kind of starts back when you decide to put those retirement paperworks in. And, you know, in that moment, like you're making a choice to walk away for something. I didn't have to leave at 21 years. And the response you get from a lot of people is congratulations. That's amazing. They're like, well, I'm quitting my job. I'm deciding to leave the one thing that I've known since I was 17 years old. So it's a lot of mixed emotions, like leading up to it. But yeah, what I did not expect was when anyone, I had a long-term leave and everything like that. I didn't expect when I actually hit that retirement date, and then two days later I got my final pay. And then a the day after that, I got my retiree ID card. And it's like, oh my, this is real. It's all done. It's it's a new phase. And it was, it was just like this and in- kind of a very intense feeling of sadness and isolation, which scared me a little bit, not for myself, but coming to realize you're like, oh my, like I'm in a good place. This is a really scary, dangerous time for someone who isn't. So if I'm feeling this way, what is it like for someone that doesn't have a professional license and can't hang a shingle? What is it like for someone who's not in a stable marriage? What is it like for someone who has maybe home insecurity or or something like that, notwithstanding the military retirement checks? It put me in, to a new phase of thinking about self-care and resiliency, even though it's been something that I've focused on for the better part of really my entire Jack Corp career, but more intently, probably the last three or four years.
1: Yeah, Amy, and I wanted to turn to that because you were one of the people that responded to my request for people to come on board and talk about all things transition related. And you shared with me the importance of self-care and mental health. I immediately said yes, because as military officers, we're all going to put on a good face and say, yep, I can do this, but let's talk about this. And please, the floor is yours.
0: I've always had an interest in brain science and psychology, and even as a child. So I, I think I, I may have picked the wrong career path going to law, not psychiatry or medicine. When I taught at the JAG school for three years, it was an amazing environment, and in large part, we did have a lot of autonomy to teach what we wanted to. I created a course on law and psychiatry, and again, selfishly for myself, because I loved the topic, and I thought it was a really important thing to explore for especially criminal law advocates and specialists, and so I got to know a little bit more about brain science, and I got some mentors in that realm. I worked with the Institute for Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy at the University of Virginia when I was there. So that from an academic perspective. And I and I took that back out to the field with me. And then it really started to set in on a personal level when I, like I said, I after I Taught at the JAG school. I I went out and was a commanded advocate for a couple of years. And then, like, I want to get back into criminal law. I want to teach and lead and practice back in that realm, especially as a defense counsel. It's what I had wanted to do my my whole career and hadn't had a chance to do yet. So, when I took the job as the regional defense counsel, what I didn't expect was how that practice was going to affect me as someone who thought I understood the practice of criminal law. But again, you cannot, you don't know what it feels like to be a defense counsel until you've in that seat. And so it's important for our leaders to think have those defense billets and experience. One of the things that was different about that job and what is very reflective of how I'm feeling now is that isolation. When you're running those regional defense offices, you don't have a friend. The OSJ is your adversary. You don't have your peers, the the eight other RDCs are spread out literally all over the world. And that was the worst job transition mentally that i had had in my career. But I quickly realized, I'm like, oh my, I'm leading 30 people. I have to be in a good place. So for my own sake and for that of people I was leading, that was the first time in my career that I really intently like, I'm going to get help. I'm going to explore how to make myself healthier and better. And then I'm going to spread the gospel. And I, and I did as much as I could. Every time I went out to my regional field offices, I talked about resilience. I talked about self-care. I talked about how stressful it is to take on these cases from the client perspective. How do you have that balance of being vested in their case and connect with them and keeping that wall up? You know, and then as I kind of settled in and realized my career was coming to an end, I did it with a little bit more earnestness and I wrote an article about self-care. I helped to write some congressional reports about vicarious trauma and things like that. That's kind of the story and the background of why I'm talking about this, because I'm not a clinician, I'm not a social worker, I'm not a doctor, I'm just one of you, but I am one of you. And I think my perspective is, is helpful, hopefully, in that regard, and help give people some tools and perspective to not hurt so much. I mean, it's 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 going to hurt. I'll say that about the transition process, and it that feels different for everyone, but that's kind of where my informed
1: perspective comes from a little bit on this. You've hit on something that... To me, is for me. I mean, if you listen to my trailer, I talked about the fact that you go through a military career, you have mentors, you have assignment officers, they provide advice that you can go, you could identify five, 10 people that you could call up or email and say, hey, listen, this is my job offers. When it comes to post military service, yes, there's a network out there. Yes, you can ping people for that, but it really is on you. To me, it it seems like it's the first time that instead of a spirit of core going at it as a team, ultimately you have to go it alone. The military, its focus is, at least on the JAG Corps, is supporting the active duty component or reserve component maybe, but they've got a mission and helping us land on our feet while they want us all to be successful and happy and joyful in retirement. That is not their mission focus. And on top of that, as you indicated earlier, we have this whole COVID environment, which has really sent people home in individual workspaces and houses. For a while, it's great, but you feel like the walls can be closing in on you. For me, this is an important subject as well And developing mental resilience. And you listen to people that go through, you know, my first interview it took her seven months to find a job. And I've got other people getting ready to come on to say, get used to rejection. And we're not used to rejection. And now you have to go hat in hand and find work.
0: Not to say that nobody cares about what you've done. for. I mean, that's overstating it certainly, but they don't understand what we've done. I mean, the, the one interview I had with a big law firm, they're lovely, gracious people, but I was more of a curiosity to them. They're like, you joined the army? Like you're in the army for this time? wow, that's cool. And there's the other thing too. And I know like everybody says this, but you got to learn how to talk about yourself. It's no longer we, you got to say like what you've done, but you know, even when you get used to that, it's still hard to translate. I would tell a a C story, so to speak about maybe some big litigation or complex investigation or something I worked on. And then the civilian attorney would come back and be like, you just don't understand how demanding our clients out here are though like uh, try a general (laughs) calling you in the middle of the night or try practicing on a combat phone in a tent that's very difficult to translate and that's part of the isolation right so you we are so used to having this community that I mean we come from all different corners and all different backgrounds and speak different dialects and sometimes literally different languages. Yet somehow it all comes together. Like it's still that common experience. I'm trying to analogize like how do you explain how this feels when you just have to go through it. You know, another experience that you don't know what it feels like until you've been through it is basic training. All of us have been through some sort of basic training. My husband was enlisted before he went to West you know I went through Beast Barracks and people tell you it's gonna suck. Our son went through basic training a little over a year ago for the Air Force. And we're like, listen, gonna suck, but just stick it out. And then when he gave us that that first phone call 72 hours after he rides and could barely speak through the, the kind of the trauma and the shell shock of it all, we're like, yep. But here's the difference. This is why I wasn't scared, is because those drill sergeants, those drill instructors, MTIs, were not going to let anything bad happen. He was with a brotherhood. And his first and only letter home to me acknowledged that he's like, you were right. These people come from all corners of the earth. But man, it's amazing how quickly you break down boundaries when you're in the, the communal suck, so to speak. When you're going through this transition, it is just you all alone crying on your couch in your living room, right? Like there's nobody there when that wave of sadness just comes over you. Like, what is this? There isn't someone to turn to and say like, yo, bro, what, what is this? And then for them to like say, yeah, it's okay. We'll get through it. There sort of is virtually. I mean, we've, we've gotten very good at being connected virtually, but that's not the same because you get the congratulatory, like, yeah, you made it first day of retirement. Isn't it great? And like, there's no words to kind of bridge that gap between people thinking you should be in this really celebratory period of your life and explaining that you're actually feeling like an intense sense of loss in sadness
1: and isolation. That you're adrift. Yeah. <laughs> you shared with me your article. You shared with me in an email yesterday, some accounts of the. Most extreme. We have to acknowledge. We hear the statistic of 22 military veterans a day committing suicide. The immediate thought is these are people that have seen the horrors of combat. But you shared with me accounts of people who that feeling adrift, they just could not conquer of of leaving the service.
0: I'll share one other thing. You know, kind of my transition process out. That again is a shared experience. Everyone will go through. Everyone is going to go through a, a final physical right? You can't get that final, they won't sign out on those final transition clearing papers, doesn't matter how you're leaving, but you got to get that final physical. And the doctor, he was so proud of this little handout. He gave me about ways to live longer. It's like 10 ways to live longer. And it talked about eating vegetables and fish oil and exercise and these sort of things. And then in passing, he's like, oh, I I see you sought mental health treatment in your past. I'm like, yeah. It's like, so is all that resolved itself? I'm like, no. He's like, yeah, I figured as much. There's a stigma. Like I get it, but just over, you know, forget about the stigma, go get help, go make sure you're okay. And that was it. And I was kind of sent on my way. Whereas the, the fourth leading cause of death on our age is suicide. And when you think about like what the root causes of suicide are, it's not what you would necessarily intuit. It's not being in a quote, bad place. It's just having this feeling, whether it is true or not, that you are a burden on whomever, you know, your family, society, and you feel alone. And then you also have this capacity to, to die. There has to be a, an ability and capacity for self-harm that I think is a very unique facet of our military service teaches us to run to the sound of danger and to the gunshots. And Into the fires. And so we've become desensitized to being selfless and doing what's best for those around us. Again, it doesn't make sense, right? Why would somebody who is getting ready to retire or who has just retired and has a family who loves them and cares about them, like why would they feel like the world would be better without them? But we're seeing these cases. And a lot of people we don't know at the end of the day, right? Most people don't even know, they don't fully explain and we're left to guess. But yes, yeah, last week, a recent very senior retiree from the military died by suicide. So it's, I don't want to overstate it because it is still rare, right? It, it's still not, more people are going to die by heart attack and cancer and accidents and such, but it's the one thing that we can control. So it is a little concerning, you know, again, we don't talk about this so much that my genetics, I can't control, but your mental health and resilience and stability, it's something that you can actually take active measures to just be prepared for and trying to build up that network to not feel isolated. I just think it's important for people to understand that feeling's going to come and to be prepared for it.
1: I want to ask you if there's a strategy or things that you can do. But the other thought, as you were talking there, and and I went back to what you were saying about being able to attend your son's four o'clock basketball game is people that have spent 21, 28, 29 years in the military, as we're off ramping from the service, for most of us, our kids have either grown and left the house or are leaving a house. And there's a sense of, I've been out here busy providing for the family, doing something I love, serving my country. And now you come to the finish line. And a lot of those things and those people that gave you meaning are off living their lives and you're happy for them. Yeah. Um, but it's all these things that are converging as you're leaving your military family
0: that's what people don't understand or a different facet to the life we lived was our family was okay without us we left them for long periods of time so there, there's that kind of in the back of your psyche too when people are going through these tough times is like they'll be fine without me they were fine without me you know I mean a lot of the times that is tough like coming and inserting yourself back into your children's lives after being gone kids are jerks sometimes I love my two boys they're amazing human beings and the, the you know the smartest kids I know, but yeah, you're not gonna get that validation from them necessarily that you've made the right decisions and that you're necessarily needed. So I mean that's something what can we do outwardly to help other people? I mean, that's something that came the, the recent suicide of again the very senior officer, the outpouring of people who are like, oh my God, he was such a he was a mentor. He was so kind and caring and such a huge part of my life, and my career. And I can't believe he's gone. Why would he do that? What we can do is we can tell people that more. We can do a better job of those little micro experiences and just calling somebody, texting them, reminding them that like, Hey, I know we haven't talked in 10 years, but you were really instrumental in my life. Please keep on keeping on because you're going to keep making people's lives better. It's tough to say, what can you do for yourself? because again, everybody's different and everybody has a different thing that kind of keeps them going and keeps them alive today. We have that choice every single morning, whether to keep on going or to not. And it's, it's something different and you kind of have to know yourself. So it's kind of going back to, you know, what I started with go through some career coaching if you can. So there's 40,000 VSOs out there that are ready to give you services and help you in this transition process take advantage of that and really figure out who you are and who you want to be. But that's another tough thing about the transition is people will say, oh, what do you want to do when you get out? And you're like, yeah, right. And you have that, leg, like, you're like, uh,
1: I sit on my couch and watch YouTube videos, but they don't
0: pay for that." <laughs> exactly. So what do you, yeah, what do you want to do? And then you try that out though. You could try that out for a little while and you're like, wow, this is not really as fulfilling as you had hoped it would be. What we really should be thinking is, like, what do you want to be? Because you don't leave that identity behind you, that public servant identity, wanting to be bigger than yourself. There's a different opinions on how much should your profession define who you are, but it does define who you are. Even if you deny and say, it's just a job, it's not who I am. You really got to think about now, who do you want to be and find people around you that will help explore that, not the people. They're be, they're all well-intentioned and it's good to have those conversations, but when people, it's just not helpful to answer that question. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? You got to figure out what you want to do.
1: <laughs> it sounds to me like the, the most important thing is first and foremost, the awareness that it's not all rainbows and unicorns. And yes, you're at a time where you get to do what you want to do. Be prepared for those doubts. Be prepared for the rejection. Be prepared for just not knowing. Be prepared for just sometimes a feeling of sadness. As much as you're told and you don't want to say my identity is being a judge advocate, you live it for 21 to 30 years. It's hard not to do that. It's hard picking out clothes. I had a uniform. I knew what I was going to wear every day. So first and foremost is just being aware of it. And the second thing is It is up to the individual, but reach out to trusted mentors, to trusted friends, people that you're close to who have gone through the transition process and say, this is what I'm feeling. We tend not to talk about that. And before we came on, you and I were talking, you know, it's something that even in the non-transition process, we usually don't talk about. We don't have open conversations in polite society necessarily about. Yeah.
0: Unless you're Brene Brown or some very prominent person who talks about these things, it's unnerving. We can say, we can laud vulnerability all day long. We don't do it very well. I don't actually see that practiced a whole lot. It's tough, but what I'll say is once you, and you alluded to this too, when you, you know, it's, it is somewhat freeing personally to actually articulate and talk about a problem. And then you realize how many other people are going through what you're going through. And that's what I, to go back to first started to get very earnest about sharing this with other people and making sure the other people were okay. So many people reached out to me from across the JAG or and even some other branches. And then people referred other people to me like, man, we had a good conversation. I want you to talk to this person. And then it kind of went from there and. Again, because it is still stigmatizing and we can say otherwise all day long, but it's true. You know, I I would keep those conversations and confidence, and we'd work through these things. But it was amazing how many people kept coming and, and reaching out and, and wanting to talk about these things. And so it, it's a problem throughout the legal profession, right? If we take a step back from the JAG Corps, part of what I used you know in the, in the article I sent out to the, to the JAG Corps about self-care was the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing, which has now turned into an institute on lawyer well-being that the ABA kind of runs or at least supports Another resource that we are very, very lucky to have, I'm now a member of two state bars, and I can say at least for Kansas and Texas, amazing CLEs out there about mental health and resiliency and self-care and that sort of thing. Something else to think about and leverage is the greater legal community. We really forget, right? We have a wonderful, the Jaguar is such an amazing family and provides for us so well. And Another analogy I thought of, which isn't so much an analogy if you're in the Navy, but being in the military is like being on a boat, like a big cruise ship where you've got Susie Cruise director, you've got activities, you have friends, you have parties, <laughs> you have all sorts of challenging things. You can go on excursions, you can do, right? And then leaving is like, there's the ocean. It's all yours right? Like go. And you're like, wait, what? Like I have to roam my own boat. You're like, yes, it's going to be great. You can go wherever you want to go. We're like, I don't know if I want to go wherever I'm like, can't you tell me where to go? It's so overwhelming, like stepping off a gangplank, not to another cruise ship, right? Like we spend our time going from ship to ship to ship. And now it's like off a gangplank, just onto the shore, off into the the great, vast, wide open. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to concept. And I'm trying to conceptualize in different ways that hopefully will, you know, make sense for other people. And like you said, you know, I'm still in the throes of this. Like this is still a very real and raw period for me as I'm transitioning but the human spirit is so resilient, we do forget about the pain. I would encourage everyone, you know, talk about people who have been through this process. Try to find a friend or a battle buddy that can go through it with you. I have a friend who we retired the same day and we talk almost every day. And that's really, really helps. You know, we're, we're close friends, but we've never as much in our 20 plus year friendship and we need it. And now it just is kind of a natural thing us having these very regular conversations. And, and not much is said sometimes other than like, yeah, still here, still going through it. The other thing I learned through career coaching is, again, what do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? I really like working. I enjoy working. I like working seven days a week. I like throwing myself into projects. And then I like stepping all the way back. And that's something else that, you know, as a sole practitioner, I can control, but then what also makes this transition period tough is when you, the day you hang your shingle, you don't have any work. It's this period of like building up and finding things. So the other thing I'll offer that has helped me in this transition period is I have a pretty solid base of volunteer work that I do. And I'm the president of a local nonprofit that supports the museum. I do some other local volunteering at the VFW and some other benevolent organizations. So volunteer work can give you purpose and it can give you a place to be, right? Just having something on the calendar, like I got to be at this place means, and this is real, I actually have to get dressed today. I actually have to look presentable because again, I know people have gone through this process who will go a long time without basic self-care and that's a real thing. And don't feel bad about that. If you find yourself in that spot where like, what's wrong with me? It's just like, you're in the midst of it. It's okay. We've been there. It's tough and it's so multifaceted, but hopefully this illuminates it to some extent. And then it again, encourages people to find some sort of cohort that'll really understand. And that it gives you the psychological safety to actually experience it fully. Because it's really tough to be honest with yourself and even more difficult to be honest with others. I'm here. I'm willing to be that person place for anybody
1: who needs it. And I'm hoping other people will offer themselves up in that same way. And so Amy, they can find you on LinkedIn at Amy Muscato Bateman, correct? Correct. I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile right now, Bateman Law Group, LLC. Yes, that's me. Thank you for this message. And thank you for talking about a facet of the transition process that We would all probably try to shoulder through, but to hear someone say, it's okay, it's going to happen. I think that's a very important message for all of us who are going to go through the transition process.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to share it. And truly, as I've expressed to you before, what you're doing is such an important piece of this because it really is a huge gap not anybody else's job for to help us figure out the transition like you're taking ownership of it for yourself and thank you so much for sharing it with the rest of us going through it to help as well and maybe i can come back in a while and help some solo practitioners out there we can talk more about that transition once i figure that out
1: that'd be great (laughs) thank you amy thank you for listening if you like this podcast be sure to subscribe and tell your friends After
0: the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.